Hello, everybody, and welcome to More of a Comment Than a Question. I am Paul Connor, and I'm joined by my friend and co-host, Rachel Ernstoff, who is now a married woman. Rachel, congratulations. And I'm actually Rachel Hartman for real now. (laughs) (laughs) So you messed it up, but that's all right. It's just, I'm such a feminist. But I I even changed my name on Zoom. There's this... Yeah, I, there's this block in my mind for calling you Hartman, uh, and I think yeah. I think I just respect women too much. Okay, well, a pet that's like okay, this is a tangent, but a small pet peeve of mine is like people thinking that that's a feminist thing. But like, where do you think the name Ernstoff came from? Came from my dad, not from my mom. And so, like, how is that? But whatever, that's irrelevant. I had a great wedding. Um, What was your mother's name? I'll call you that in future. (laughs) But where did she get her name from? Also from her dad. (laughs) Yeah, no, good, good, good point. I don't really Um, have, I don't really have a rejoinder to that. So yeah. And Hartman is nicer than Ernstoff in my opinion. So anyway, Um, but I haven't actually officially changed my name because apparently that is really complicated and a pain in the ass oh. too. so um so that i mean i so, so. <laughs> I, I guess i'm just a, i'm just a stickler for precision for yeah in that case. bureaucracy and yeah logistics. exactly like what the u.s government calls you is what i you know as a guest in this country should call you anyway how anyway. was the wedding how was the wedding how was the honeymoon it was amazing. The wedding was so much fun. It went by really quickly, which everyone told me that it would, but um, it still went by quicker than I thought it would. Um, but we had I had lots of fun. Um, got to see a bunch of relatives and friends from near and far. We all came to celebrate, and uh, it was great. And then we went to Jamaica, and everything there was just perfect. It was like perfect weather. The water nice. was really clear, and we could see... We found like a starfish in the water. I was like holding a starfish. It's like amazing. Um, and yeah, and everything, it was just so perfect. And then I had to come back and go back to research and work. And now I'm just sad. <laughs> and everything was still perfect. Okay. Hey, you chose to enroll in grad school, as you, as you said. It's a, it's a, it's a choice. So anyway, um, today... It's a very special edition of the podcast. We are joined by friend of the pod, making her second appearance on the podcast, uh, Nicole Barbero, uh, a, who is a research scientist at WGU Labs, adjunct professor at Utah Valley University. Nicole, thank you so much for joining us again. Well, thank you for having me back on. I'm excited to be here. Yeah. Should um, I... Should I feel threatened by Nicole because I was a guest, uh, repeat guest on the podcast, and then now I'm official co-host, so I feel like something's looming. We're going to make this a, a three co-host podcast soon. Uh, I'd say you're safe for now, Rachel. I mean, I'm not, I'm not, I don't have any concrete plans to replace you with Nicole, but you know, I mean, just... Just try we'll to see what like, I say. just try to perform. <laughs> just try to keep your performance <laughs> up to scratch, and and uh, you'll be fine. Anyway, okay, so guys, let's stop with the the bullshit because it's been um, a really busy week on Psych Twitter. 
Um, my, the main thing um, I wanted to discuss, and, and this is um, this is why Nicole's on, um, is this uh, University of Austin. There's a, a new university just dropped, um, <laughs> and uh, I wanted to talk about it. And Nicole, uh, you published a really thoughtful thread on it, um, so I wanted to kind of have you as part of the conversation. Um, but before we get to that, I feel like it's probably worth... Uh, devoting a little bit of time to discussing um, the kind of thing that's been consuming psych Twitter for the last few days, um, which is this um, this paper uh, and this subsequent sort of public criticism of the paper and then public criticism of the criticism. Um, I know, like, both of you said you've sort of followed it a bit, um, but so I guess I'll I just set the table and give a, a bit of backstory of just in case any listeners aren't aware of what um, happened. So essentially a, um, a grad student, uh, I think at the University of South Florida, um, published a paper in the, I believe, the British Journal of Social Psychology. And the, the paper purported to find that uh, it was a kind of an interesting study. They, they, surveyed um, women lining up outside nightclubs um, and they measured uh, their skin exposure. Uh, They measured the outdoor temperature. Uh, They measured these women on a a self-objectification scale. Um, I'm not totally sure what what that is. Uh, We could look it up if it becomes important. Um, but I think the, the purported finding of the paper was an interaction. There was an interaction between the self-objectification scale and skin exposure into uh, affecting subjective feelings of coldness. And the, I think the proposed effect was that when self-objectification was high, there was really no relationship between skin exposure and subjective coldness but when self-objectification was low there was kind of the expected relationship women who exposed more skin said that they felt colder Uh, and so the the proposed effect is something like um, women who engage in self-objectification sort of uh, it leads to a almost dissociation between brain and body, right? It's like supposedly you now like don't even feel cold when your body's actually getting cold through exposed skin because you're, you've been sort of brainwashed into this idea that you have to expose that skin or, or something like that. So I'm not going to claim to have read the paper or be an expert on the paper. This is, it's, and it might not even be important to this discussion. And if it is, we can pause and, and look stuff up. But essentially, the paper um, came under sort of a a criticism, and it was interesting to note what the the actual tenor of the criticism. So Nick Brown, who is a um, well-known sort of advocate of open science and a sort of self-appointed kind of data cop, does a lot of error detection, um, does a lot of sort of public critique of bad research, um, sort of posted a screenshot of the paper, and I think he underlined all the p-values uh and so he was kind of putting it forward as like and i think he said something like it's 2021 and social psychologists are still publishing this stuff and then he made a joke i think about the hypothesis he's like women 
women who expose skin don't feel cold because they consider themselves to be hot in quotation marks. And then he was like, get it. Um, so it was kind of like a snarky, like, look at this ridiculous hypothesis. Look at this, uh, likely P hacked paper. So like one thing I think not everybody realizes is that I think the main thing that he was trying to point to is look at these P values, not like, look at this ridiculous hypothesis because, you know, um, as, meta scientists have sort of shown when you have a paper that's kind of full of these highish p values between 0.01 and 0.05 that's um that's quite unlikely with well-powered well you know like confirmatory research it's quite unlikely to end up with all these p values in that space because if a hypothesis is true the vast majority and the study's well-powered the vast majority of p values will be below uh point Oh one, so um, it's a it's kind of a, a red flag and a warning sign to see a lot of p values between 0.01, 0.05, which I think is really the main point he was trying to make. So after he after he uh, posts that, um, some of his friends and followers kind of join in, sort of mocking the paper and saying, "Yeah, this this is stupid, this is ridiculous, and stuff like that." And then after that, there's been a, quite a large backlash against these uh, mostly males doing this criticism. And the backlash has been mostly sort of females saying, you know, how dare you, how dare you uh, criticize a young female ECR who is studying women's oppression? This is, this is not the way to do it. This is, this is indicative of a toxic culture in the open science community. Um, and this is, uh, this is rude. This is disrespectful. This is sexist. This is just, uh, this is toxic and this, and you're pushing people away from open science when you do this. Um, yeah, so that's, that's to my knowledge, more or less what happened. Do you guys want to add anything to that basic rundown? I think that kind of covers Um, the, the gist of it. Yeah, right. So, um, yeah, I'm curious of your thoughts. I have a, I have a few thoughts about this. I wrote a long Twitter thread and deleted it, and uh, I think I tweeted one or two things about it. But it like, every, it seems like every single person on Psych Twitter has made some kind of comment about this in the last in the last couple of days. Mostly, sort of saying this is disgraceful. We need to do better in terms of not in terms of the research, but in terms of like the criticism and like, and also like one thing I've noticed is like a lot of people are really trying to talk up this paper and say, no, this is really good research. Um, which I I don't know if I, I don't know if I buy. Um, but yeah, like what, (laughs) what are your thoughts? I think like it's, I would say it's certainly true that, the original tweet and the original sort of criticism was uh, not very diplomatic and not very not very respectful. And I think I I also think like Nick may have m- misrepresented the sort of hypothesis or the actual theoretical grounding of the of the paper in, in his original tweet. And and I think so. It's it's probably true that. He could have definitely true that he could have been a lot nicer about it. I think it's it it is probably still worth pointing out that this collection of p values is very very unlikely 
if we're studying true effects um, in in sort of a rigorous way, I still think that is a message that not not everybody has uh, absorbed from the open science movement. So I still think that's worth saying. But obviously, there's more uh, tactful, respectful ways of going about it. So I have I have a few thoughts on kind of I have, I haven't publicly tweeted anything about it because I haven't got into this latest round. But this just reminded me that this happened about a year ago, something similar, and I had thoughts on it. Um, but overall, I mean, my I come from the field of study of evolutionary psychology, so I'm pretty used to people dogging on on the hypotheses, making fun of um, a lot of our field, including myself, because there are a lot of silly, you know, quote unquote, uh, hypotheses that are out there. Um, I also, so, you know, I'm kind of just like, okay, I get the snarky comment kind of thing. You know, it's easy to make those snarky comments on Twitter. Um, I'm sure if someone digs through my 15,000 or so tweets, you can probably find some snarky research comment about something. Um, so I get it, but you know, it's just kind of easy to do so on Twitter. The other thing that seems to be kind of the big issue of why everyone's kind of um, criticizing Nick's criticism of the paper, aside from like the data point is, you know, we shouldn't be piling on or not constructively criticizing early career academics and specifically uh, early career women academics. And I, I get that, you know, not, I get that we want to value constructive criticism over like snarky comments. Um, we are on a social media site, like this isn't like, you know, a professional conference. So, you know, kind of the norms of social media kind of come into play there. But then I also, you know, I started on Twitter as a graduate student in 2017, putting my stuff out there. And I, one thing that does bother me is I don't like the idea of that, like an adult, like me as an adult woman in 2017, like I can't take people making fun of, you know, my work or snarking about something that I said. Um, I do find that almost kind of a little insulting. I'm like, I put myself out here as an adult on a social media platform. Like I can be treated like an adult. So I, I feel like mm. it also is kind of like patronizing in a way, or at least I feel that way to be yeah. like, Oh, we must protect, you know, um, female academics, even though we are like, I consider myself a full grown woman, even six years ago, five years ago when I was on Twitter. So I feel conflicted in that way. Like I, I get the point of, yeah, we should be more constructive and not snarky, but I also like, I'm an adult person like on this site and would rather be treated like an adult rather than like infantilizing graduate students, which I also feel like we tend to do a lot, which I don't personally like, but I know a lot of people disagree with that perspective, which is why I don't usually tweet <laughs> too openly about it. But Rachel, I'm curious to, to hear what your thoughts are as well. Yeah, I mean, I mostly agree with what you just said, um, and that like as a as a grad student, I want to know that my work is being taken seriously, and that means like both positive and negative uh, aspects of it. And so, you know, if people if it's good enough for people to cite and like share and recommend, then it should also be good enough for people to critique and. Um, you know, let me know what can I, what I can do to improve. Uh, yeah. So I think like generally just doing it in a nice way is recommended no matter who the target is. Uh, they can be, you know, an early, early career researcher or a 
tenured professor, they should be treated with respect. But yeah, I, I agree. Like, I don't want to be shielded from criticism um, just because I'm just starting out in the field. Mm. Yeah, there was also, a, it, I found it quite interesting because I was sort of reading through debates people were having and discussions and at one point somebody sort of was in a discussion with the lead author this this grad student and kind of saying well you know like yeah like i i take your point that people could be more tactful about it but like sort of publishing this stuff sort of does show that you maybe didn't pay haven't paid that close attention to what the replication movement and all the sort of meta science that's come out of that and her response was like, no, I, I'm a, I, I'm a published researcher. Like that's insulting that you would think that I don't, I'm not aware of the replication crisis. And it, it sort of struck me that like the, the sort of the shifting uh, identity there where like um, if, if you're criticized, like the criticism is out of bounds because it's an ECR right, who should be sort of mentored and given constructive criticism. But then, like, you know, the next day, the the, the message is, well, like, how dare you assume, like, I need, I need, a, a, like, any additional information or I'm not your equal, right? Like, how dare you assume I'm not your equal? So, yeah, that, that is, um, that is an interesting aspect of this. I mean, I, I guess I don't know, like, I nobody has ever cared about any research I've, I've put out there so I like I just don't know what it's like I mean I know so I mean Keith Payne sort of engaged like I wrote a paper criticizing his theory and he sort of they sort of fired back and and wrote a critique of, of what I did and like it was you know I it felt like okay this is this is how science is supposed to be to some like to some extent we're like you know, um, critiquing each other and holding each other's ideas up to the flames and, and seeing what survives. And I guess I, I didn't, I didn't mind that. But um, another thing that really struck me about the last couple of days on Twitter uh, was just how sort of opportunistically uh, and sort of uh, inconsistently people apply these principles. Uh, so. I don't know if you guys, um, Rachel, you probably listened to it. So like, one of the most listened to episodes of this podcast was about the um, uh, women, uh, female mentors paper that was published in uh, Nature Psychoms um, and was subsequently retracted after like a huge wave of Twitter criticism. Um, and in that case, you know, the, some features of the situation were similar. Like the paper, the first author on the paper was an ECR, a female ECR, um, a, a foreign, a foreign ECR too. So somebody from the middle East. Um, and you know, like people were really, really strongly criticizing this paper on methodological grounds. Uh, Samin Vizier called it a dumpster fire on Twitter like another neuroscientist wrote on Twitter publicly that this paper would not pass a first year methods class. Now, all these people outraged on Twitter the last couple of days at this, that people would like be rude about the work of an ECR, a female ECR. I don't remember a single one of them 
having a problem when Samin Razia was calling a female ECR's work a dumpster fire. And it's pretty obvious to me why that is, right? Like in this case, you know, the, the, the paper is spreading a message that we like. The paper is sort of data and conclusions that, that sort of us kind of favored and and like align well with a progressive narrative um women are so oppressed that they're dissociating from their bodies in the other case the data was suggesting something that we potentially don't like or like a message or a, a pattern in data that is is kind of uncomfortable to think about which is like people who are mentored by more women go on to publish less and so i mean in terms of the methodology you know, like, I guess there's no way of actually comparing the papers in terms of what's a better methodology. But I think like, I don't know, I guess I I would just like everybody on Twitter to think about, well, if you have this principle that it's wrong to be rude and publicly, like, rude about the methods of a paper published by a female ECR, why did you not give a shit about that a year ago? Like, why, why is this why has this become important to you uh, in this particular instance when you didn't really seem to care about it in the past? Wait, wait, hold on a second. I thought the conclusion of this paper was that in order to stay warm, you should self-objectify. <laughs> that? <laughs> no, I'm just joking. <laughs> um, but yeah, yeah, it's clearly just like ideologically driven um, and I, I mean, I don't know why you would expect something different from Twitter or from academics. Uh, we have a problem uh, with ideology in academia, which leads to uh, us needing new institutions. Nice segue. Oh my god! Great goodness. segue. <laughs> what a co-host. See, I might keep you around. I might. I might. Um, <laughs> Sorry, Nicole. You're, you're not, you're not I didn't come up with it fast enough. What can I say? Uh, that was brilliant. Um, well, do we have a problem with ideology? Because if Psych Twitter has taught me anything in the past week, Rachel, <laughs> it's that it's laughable. It, 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 it's worthy of mockery to suggest that there might be any kind of issues along these lines in academia. Okay, so somebody else can introduce this topic. I've talked too much already what what's going on what what are you getting at rachel uh sure so um there is a new university um sort of called the university (laughs) of austin uh as far as i know it was announced like i don't know like four or five days ago it seems like forever um maybe it's like a week anyway so uh basically all of these uh, heterodox people, um, public figures, professors, intellectuals, whatever, uh, came together and decided that we needed change um, and that they were kind of tired of like talking about all the problems in with current institutions and they figured that you know the best thing to do would be to start a new one. And so they did. And um, yeah, it was kind of 
hard I feel, I feel like I maybe I came back from my honeymoon and it was like just starting and I was sort of like figuring out what was going on but at first it took me a while to like sort through what all of the like mockery and like fake accounts and there was just so much out there that was like I was trying to figure out what is actually true about the university and what is like a parody mm-hmm. um and I just want to say I disagree. I don't like mockery, and I disagree with most of what they're saying. But there are pretty funny tweets about um, <laughs> about the new university. Uh, but yeah, so um, I don't know if we. And then Nicole uh, had a thread on the university, and so Nicole, I'll let you uh, introduce your ideas because I don't want to butcher them. Yeah, I uh, I saw the the new university drop uh, this week, and as uh, as someone who was unofficially from some Twitter list part of the intellectual dark web at some point in the past few years, I've since been kicked off the list. I think I have become too progressive for the IDW, um, but I it's easy to mock like. Again, as we were talking about with the paper, like it's easy to make snarky comments on Twitter. Some of the parody accounts are really good of like actually trying to distinguish what is actually from the University of Austin, what's not. Um, so I was trying, you know, I was watching kind of all this, you know, my feed is just fully taken up with this whole University of Austin stuff. And I was really trying to figure out, I'm like, okay, what's like a char- the most charitable take I can take on this? Um, and so my general idea was, it seems like aside from like mocking like the name and like the the cast of characters that they are involved in this university um across the board my point was i'm like maybe some of the initial kind of like reaction from kind of the negative reaction about the founding of this new university is really about the fact that someone's trying to start a new liberal arts university because that's not typically the route that's gone. And I tried to put this in more of like a historical context of how higher ed institutions develop over time, um, which is very US centric, uh, by the way. So anyone listening outside the US is very US centric. But the US higher education system is really hierarchical. We have, you know, like these very broad access universities at the bottom, you know, like our community college, broad access four year, more vocational based schools, all the way up to your like super highly selective research universities and Ivy League universities. Um, and it's they're trying to, from what I can tell, do kind of this really selective, interesting liberal arts college, which is a really weird place to start because most places start as, you know, these kind of vocational colleges, become more community college, expand into four-year degree offerings and try to work their way up this kind of ladder. So that was my trying to make a charitable take um, through all the Twitter snark on the university. Um, you know, there's a lot more of discussion of like, do we need this? Like, are there kind of founding principles like warranted? Like, do we have, you know, kind of this ideology issue? Is this a good idea? You can also like, at what stage is this university at? It seems more just like kind of an idea at this point. Um, it almost to me feels like a really like broad expansion from like heterodox academy into like if heterodox academy Mm. was to become a university Mm. like that's kind of my take on it but um curious what you think about that i mean there's there's a lot of room for discussion about this university uh the more that i I keep reading and learning about it but that was me trying to be constructive and not snarky um in my twitter approach to the new university drop this week 
Yeah, I I, I was just interested in your thread because it, it sort of it, it is kind of interesting and unique what they're trying to do, and it's really it's really not obvious to me how it's going to go, right? Like, <laughs> yeah. Um, but I, I I also just have a lot of like logistical questions that I just felt like you couldn't you couldn't really get them into the discussion because it was just like there was a really I felt like just a really strong social pressure to mock this like and if if you're not like mocking it you better just shut up about it and if you if you want to like actually sort of you know I like I kind of I I tried to tweet about it and just sort of ask like hey like so because I was sort of interested so you remember when the um all those people signed that open letter sort of uh defending free discourse uh and sort of just saying like we think our culture is going in a dangerous direction in terms of sort of intolerance of um, heterodox viewpoints. And, and we think we need to sort of reaffirm the importance of open dialogue and free speech. One thing I found really interesting at that time was that almost nobody on psych Twitter said a word about it. Like it was almost radio silence. I think Yoel Inbar finally tweeted something about it, but then there was not there wasn't mockery. There wasn't sort of people saying, Hey, this is interesting. Hey, I support this. Or there, there wasn't people saying, Hey, I oppose this. It was just sort of nothing. It was like, almost like, well, that's sort of more in the journalism space and it's not, not for us to comment on, but it was really interesting to me that like, I guess like a year and a bit later, there's people now in the academic academic space saying sort of similar things. Like we, we are concerned about, free speech, open inquiry, um, the pursuit of truth, uh, sort of falling victim to sort of um, other other pressures within modern universities. Um, and it, it, there was a really strong response this time uh, and like almost like almost wholly just mockery. And, and I felt like quite, yeah, quite a, a strong message that people are trying to send that like, this is absurd, this is ridiculous, you, you should think this is ridiculous, you should mock this, and really almost zero engagement with the, the core sort of um, concerns that these people, I believe, sincerely hold. Like, I know a lot of people just were calling them grifters. I don't, I don't think the word's valuable, I don't, I don't like the word. It, it's, it's like, uh, you know... It, <laughs> It's kind of like saying, like, this person, my ideological opponent, um, doesn't sincerely believe what they say they believe. They're just trying to make money. And I, like, it doesn't make sense to me because most of the people involved in this university will not make any money out of it, it seems. Like, I don't know how the, the thought is that, like, Steven Pinker will make money from being an advisor on this. Like, do you... that's an honest logistical question I have like who's a grifter like who is gonna get rich from this university I did say I did see on their website they're trying to raise like three million dollars for their endowed chair so somebody it seems is going to make bank if they end up the endowed chair of this university but I think like the money all like for a specific chair position I thought that was just general funds for the university I don't know but they they actually they have a cost breakdown on one page of their website and they say something like we need 
$500,000 to support 10 founding faculty members, which I was like, 50K? <laughs> I don't know if you're going to attract the superstars. Stephen Pinker's not leaving Harvard for that. For that. <laughs> no, but then they said 400,000 for 10 grad students. And I was like, okay, 40K, live in Austin. You know, that's, a, that, that's not bad. That's not a bad stipend. Um, but then they said $3 million for, for one endowed chair, uh, faculty chair. And I, I don't know. I just don't understand. I don't like, I don't understand. What are you saying? Are you saying like the endowed chair gets $3 million? I, anyway, but it's also clear to me that like a lot of these people like Kathleen Stock, for example, her name uh, appears on their video when they were like, we're launching a new university devoted to the pursuit of truth. They flashed up all these names. Kathleen Stock's one of those names. I read that she is like not planning to move to Austin to be a faculty member at this university. So I, I don't know yeah. how she's grifting. I don't know how she's <laughs> making money out of this. As far as I know, they only have three faculty members right now who are like committed to actually being uh-huh. like the founding faculty. Um, who are they? Uh, let me see if I can find them. Is it? Peter I think they're fac- faculty Gross. fellows. So Kathleen Stock is listed as a faculty fellow, but I don't think that means mm. they're a faculty member. Yeah, what's a faculty fellow? See, this is you know gets to your point, Paul. Of like there's a lot of questions surrounding just the basic business plan. Like what is the strategy here? I can't find it on their website right now, but when I was first looking at it earlier this week, it was something like, I think they needed like $400 million or something or something insane amount of money to like stand up all these research centers. It sounds like they're trying Mm. to do something extremely like put together a very complex institution that would arise Mm. more organically and trying to build that all at once, which I think for a lot of reasons, it's probably not going to work Mm. out very well, especially in the timeline. They have like a ridiculously ambitious timeline, but um, I think a lot of the mocking about the people comes from this idea, at least on academic, like academic site Twitter, there seems to be, and this kind of relates to our earlier discussion now. So with the, uh, the graduate student of like, it's okay to punch up. And these are a lot of like big, public intellectual celebrity type names. So I think everyone feels totally mm. fine mocking Steven Pinker is totally fine mocking, mm. you know, the Weinsteins that are involved in this. Like, so everyone's mm. punching up in that, in mm. that way. So that's fine. Whereas, you know, you can see, I guess there's some sort of principle on, on mm. all this mocking that it's okay to punch up, but they can't punch down, um, with criticizing graduate student mm. research. Um, so I think that's where a lot of the mocking comes about is just because they do have kind of these mm. big controversial type intellectual names. So I think that's where a lot of the mocking is deemed yeah, okay in this case. I feel like, yeah, people, people love to mock Steven Pinker. I like, it's not totally clear to me what he, what he did done that is so bad. <laughs> yeah. I think it's because he has like, a bot or hired assistants or something to like really control his Twitter presence and like he like block yeah, yeah he blocks yeah. people and stuff and so like people see that as just very yeah. hypocritical and yeah right because if it's, if you're a free speech advocate you should be able to take criticism and you shouldn't block people but you should also I don't know I feel like you should be able to decide what you see and what other people see on your personal private like twitter 
Yeah. Um, so, I don't know. But anyway, uh, um, I, yeah. I don't know that much about his work. I've, I've read, like, sections of The Blank Slate. I have listened to him speak on a number of podcasts. I, I tend to agree with a lot of stuff that he said. <laughs> well, I just, like, problem, I don't know. It? Like, I, there was this episode last year where, like, all these psych academics on Twitter were, like, boasting that Steven Pinker blocked them. And they were like, you, got, you should do it too. All you got to do is like link him to Epstein or like retweet the photo of him with Epstein and he'll block you, tee hee hee. And it's so funny and it's like punching up. And it, honestly, it seems like bullying to me. Like it seems like kind of mean spirited, the cool kids making fun of the nerdy guy. And like, yeah, my, he might be like rich and stuff like that. But I, I still think there's this almost like high school-ish dynamic of like, if you want like the cool gang was like teasing Steven Pinker and I don't know, I always like have this sort of pangs of sympathy for people who everybody's mocking. I mean, especially when you have a pile on, it doesn't matter how big you are. If you have like a massive mob of hundreds of, and maybe thousands of people mocking you on social media, it's not, it's not fun. It doesn't matter how powerful you are. Um, There does seem to be a very clear like dynamic of like, you cannot punch up. I forgot what Steven Pinker did. I don't know where his like shift over into like, let's all hate on Steven Pinker um, came from on site Twitter. I think it started around the Jeffrey Epstein association. I think he's really a victim of association because he, um, I don't think things that he says are necessarily controversial, but he does have strong associations with a lot of controversial people. And then again, I think with the, when the Jeffrey Epstein thing was mm-hmm. happening a couple years ago. Um, I think there was like that Twitter bot or something that mm-hmm. was going on that really, mm-hmm. um, that really had an issue. Uh, mm-hmm. and I also am like afraid to tag him in anything because I'm like, I don't want to get blocked <laughs> by him. So like, I try not to like tag him in anything because I'm scared <laughs> that his bot is going to block me. And I'm like, I don't want to get blocked by you. Um, Yes, I think he's really kind of a victim of, like, the guilt by association problem. And then because he's such a big name, he just gets, like, piled on. So, like, I kind of don't blame him for having a bot that's, like, blocking people. Hmm. Yeah, so I guess that's a bit off topic. I think it's hard for me to see how, like, like Kathleen Stock is punching up at this point. I mean, she's, like, a philosophy professor who recently resigned from the University of Sussex. Like, that's... That doesn't well, scream she did a grave untouchable error superstar. In, she did, a, you know, the grave error of, like, criticizing, you know, gender ideology that's going on right now. So it's okay to punch up or down or horizontally to her <laughs> at this point. Um, yeah. It's okay to punch her um, on the Twitter mob rules at this point just because she yeah, yeah. went over into the, the taboo place. Yeah, so yeah. it's just... It's a lot of people who are unpopular... I guess. It sounds among... really ideologically driven. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> and that's a that's an interesting point about it, right? Like it's it's that's something unique about it is like this is the Substack University as I <laughs> like the, you know, it, there's a particular there's a particular sort of uh, current of like culture war discourse that this is very very connected to and it's sh- like Barry Weiss is uh, 
involved somehow. I don't know how this journalist <laughs> I don't know how this journalist is involved in founding this university, but her name appears Andrew Sullivan, another journalist, uh, another sort of like I guess you'd sort of lump them in. I've heard the word anti-woke a lot recently. And I think like Tamla Summers commented on my Twitter post. Um, he's a co-host of Very Bad Wizards. And he was sort of saying like, these people who are starting this are not um, ideologically diverse. They're, they all sort of come from the same place in in the culture war. And I... I think that's true and it's a legitimate uh, criticism in in some respects but I also think like well um, they're starting this university for a specific reason right so like they will almost inevitably all be united in agreeing that this university is needed or that this is important that there's that there's a problem with open inquiry and free speech in colleges so like it's really not surprising that you could look at them and sort of say, oh, well, they all, all these people think the same. Like, nobody's going to be on the board of UT Austin who doesn't think, like, open inquiries under threat. At, at, you yeah. Know. I, yeah, I wanted to, like, speak to that a little bit because um, I agree that, like, that's the one thing that they all have in common. But at the same time, I think they are a very diverse group of people ideologically and otherwise uh, because your ideology is not just what you think about free speech. There's like a lot, many more facets and components to it. And so, um, and I don't know all of these people and so, you know, I'm making some assumptions, but I do know some of them and know that they don't all agree about all of the issues. Um, but I just wanted to say from my personal experience, uh, interacting with people at heterodox academy which i associate with this because it's all sort of the same like you know free speech uh anti-woke kind of stuff Mm. um i've been in many discussions there and their various like book clubs and like other um, meetups and stuff like that and people there are extremely open to they, they I think they like stand by their principles they're extremely open to diverse viewpoints even if they're those viewpoints are from the left or like advocating for a woke or progressive viewpoint um like I've had the experience myself of you know saying like well hold on a second like let's think about this from the perspective of a trans person or like a black person like you know like maybe we're going too far in uh, condemning whatever and people are very open to that and they'll discuss it and they'll point out like why they think I'm wrong or they'll say like that I've convinced them and that and it's just like that culture of discussing like viewpoints that you know come from all over um, and just like having just being open to, to to hearing and discussing things is something that I was hoping to experience in academia and have not. Um, and, and yeah, I just like, like I've seen a lot of people on Twitter say like, Oh, they wouldn't accept a Marxist or they wouldn't be open to like someone who like, uh, you know, is, is on the far left. I don't think that's true at all. I think as long as you do like abide by the general, one like tenant of like free speech and openness to inquiry and civil discourse i guess that's three but like as long as you stand by those things it doesn't matter if you 
advocate for like abolishing the police or um, for whatever it is, like people in this space will listen and discuss it with you. Um, yeah, and so that's just, just on my, that. Um, yeah. The it, it, one thing that I did hear about it is part of the plan is that um, they'll do admissions slightly differently. They'll so admissions will just be sort of run via a specific admission test. So if you if you will be if you would be a professor at this school, you would have to just come up with some admissions test um, for your course, and then you would have to just let anybody in who like ace the test basically, or just like sort of rely solely on on this this admissions exam for deciding who who gets in or not i think i read that or heard that somewhere which is it does show, like if if that marxist is you know good enough at the test they'll they'll get in for sure um but they yeah it's hard to say i mean i could imagine like there being like you know like if you want to job at most prestigious universities these days you have to write a diversity statement i could imagine university of austin like you have to write a statement affirming your commitment to open inquiry and free free speech and stuff like that like i doubt they would hire somebody who uh is sort of in favor of limits to open inquiry yeah and that's okay right It will be ironic to see if they, because on their FAQ, it is, you know, we'll, we will select students who see a university as a place where cherished beliefs are, are scrutinized and intellectual development is prized. So I'm like, I'm curious if they're going to have like their own version of like a viewpoint diversity statement, which would be really ironic, you know, just overall. And this is where yeah. I think, you know, so Rachel, I'm also a member of Heterodox Academy. I've been involved with them since uh, graduate school, since they first started laying graduate affiliates. And so I am very pro, you know, open discourse. And I, I definitely resonate with the idea of like, I even see in some of my classes that students will come up to me and they're like, I was scared to ask this question. Like, can, you know, like, what do you think about this? You know, especially when it comes to um, sex and gender related stuff, because I've taught human sexuality before and, um, and child development. So I have students come up to me, like, obviously like nervous to discuss things in class or ask questions. So like, I see where they're coming from, but I also think with, there is this commitment to open discourse and open inquiry, which I generally like in this kind of like crowd, this loosely defined, uh, crowd of individuals. But I also feel like there is a lack of diversity when it comes to academic experiences. And this is something that I feel pretty strongly about that a lot of the people that are complaining about ideological diversity um, and, you know, censorship and lack of free speech and open inquiry in the academy are all from highly selective universities because you can't get your PhD at a university that's not a research intensive university or an elite institution. Um, And when you actually look at the number of students and faculty that are teaching at these types of institutions or go to these types of institutions, they're not at all representative of what the average college student is. Um, And I teach at a broad access university. Like there are no admissions requirements besides you have a high school diploma. I've taught at community colleges. Um, And then I've also taught at my research institution where I got my PhD from. And I don't think people really realize how different those spaces are for teaching. I don't have 
issues with offense or topics or anything outside of these research intensive selective universities. Um, I teach in a very conservative area of Utah um, and I have a lot of very religious individuals in my class um, with the LDS church and uh, Mormon church here. Whereas I also have a lot of students that have left the church, which is, you know, a very big deal here in that area. And everyone's talking about it in class with different people, like in community colleges, I have a very diverse set of students with different life experiences. It's just a completely different classroom experience outside of these research universities. So there is, because I did see some commentary of like, oh, there's conservatives in the academy. Like you obviously haven't been to like rural Arkansas, you know, like where other people are teaching. And so I think people at these selective research universities forget that they represent a, you know, a few percentage points of like the actual college experience for the average student. So there is an issue of ideological diversity, viewpoint diversity, censorship, but I think it's really a problem in a very small part of the academy, um, which doesn't mean it's not a problem because it is the most high profile. It's like where a lot of the work's coming out of. They have an outsized influence on kind of public mm. discussion and public perception of universities. Mm. But at the same time, I feel like we're forgetting that there's like this massive area of universities and classroom and faculty and all these different spaces where education's happening that don't look like this. And this would, this looks like a silly reaction. Um, and I say it's a reaction because they literally say like, mm. oh, there's all these problems. We're building something new, literally in reaction to something that's happening. Um, so while they're like diverse, it's mm. also kind of just like another side of the coin of the same problem, mm. I think that's going on. So, um, as someone who likes teaching at community colleges and broad access universities, I just think that there's not enough discussion that mm. this group of characters is a very, is representative of a very small fraction of what higher education mm. actually is. And I think people forget about that a lot. That's yeah. an interesting point. Go ahead. I think that, yeah, that is, that's a good point. Um, I just had like two small thoughts. One is uh, what, so there's community colleges and research universities but then there's like small liberal arts colleges, um, which also seem to be a problem when it comes to like free speech and uh, viewpoint diversity. Mm -hmm. um, would you agree with that? Like, is that am I understanding the space of higher ed correctly? Yeah. So, I mean, I can kind of think about it in, you know, like your community colleges, you have your broad access for your universities, which are primarily teaching institutions. Um, you do have your small liberal arts or slack colleges. Um, which do tend to, I would think in general, align more with like the Ivy and selective universities, because if anyone's ever seen the sticker cost <laughs> to go to these places, you're selecting already for a very similar type of student that's at these research universities, because you're selecting for a very, on average, high socioeconomic status student. And typically they have gone to, um, different types of high schools compared to students that typically go to a regional university um, or a community college. So I would say SLACs or uh, liberal arts colleges, like they're trying to build are more aligned with um, more of this progressive elite type university. Um, and a lot of them are located in kind of the East coast kind of area as well, because they tend to be more historic. They tend to be older, um, which kind of goes back to my point of like, you know, starting a liberal arts university is not as common as starting other types of universities. Hmm. 
just thinking about this point of like this may be a problem that is uh, limit limited to elite spaces or like elite institutions. Um, I think there's probably a lot of truth to that. I really, I, I'm curious what like John Haight and Steven Pinker would say. I think they might say something like, um, if if sort of the rot has set in at our best institutions, like that are supposed to be the leading lights in the search for truth, that is an important battleground. Like even if it's true, if that I could go teach at a community college and say whatever I want and nobody <laughs> would complain because it's all kind of working class kids who are just not sort of raised to search for offense in every every statement and get their professors fired for like up, upsetting them or something like that even if that's true it's it's still a problem if but like because these are the leading spaces and they're supposed to be a certain thing and they're not they're not fulfilling what i think their role should be and may, maybe that's really the battleground like what what should the purpose and role, the telos, if you will, be of our most elite academic institutions? And I guess that's probably what like a Jonathan Haidt or a Steven Pinker are most concerned about here. Yeah, I would, I would agree because I mean, the people that are coming out, you know, the graduates out of these programs are the ones that, you know, if you're coming out of a R1 university or an Ivy League university, you're disproportionately being hired across, you know, higher education, different types. It's easier to get hired down, you know, quote in the hierarchy than it is to get hired up. Um, The students that are graduating across all the different disciplines are typically going to have kind of an outsized influence on companies and societies and kind of this downstream effect. They're just in more powerful positions when they come out. So I definitely agree with that of, you know, even though, uh, research intensive universities, I think I wrote about this in one of my, in an article where it's like, they represent like 4% of all college students at these universities. Um, they do have a disproportionate outsized influence, but when, founders of, you know, like the university of Austin are saying like higher education is broken, you know, because there's no viewpoint diversity. Like this is like, you know, higher education is just this Mm. progressive, you know, like whatever, Mm. uh, pool of people. Mm. Mm. I feel like they need to be a little bit more specific because yes, academics in general Mm. tend to skew left. Mm. And I think that'd be true all the way across the board, across these different institutions. But the problems that like people are facing at like Harvard and these other elite slacks and like fancy UC schools are much different than the problems that are facing myself at, you know, a broad access four-year institution or a small local community college that I taught at before, like, you know, or even a fully online university that I work at now. Like I work in a very different higher education space than what these conversations um, are coming from. And I just feel like to, for elite universities and R1 universities to be representative of the overall problems in higher education, I think is misplaced. Um, And this is a reaction to problems in these spaces rather than I think higher education. There's no shortage of problems in higher education. but I don't think mm. 
the problem as it's seen and as it's perceived publicly is necessarily the same type of problem in every type of institution. Um, so I think their reaction, they're just trying to create another type of elite, mm. selective, you know, liberal mm. arts mm. university. So I'm, I'm curious of how much different yeah. it's actually going to be if it actually even gets off the ground fully. Well, well, I mean, it's not, I don't think they're pretending to be doing something different. Um, like they say explicitly on their website that they're trying to, like, they're going to be recruiting, you know, the most intelligent and like bright, cr creative, like interested mm -hmm. minds. And like, like, I don't think that they're trying to create a model that's like, we're going to take over higher education and like this, our, our, our institution would be able to like serve everyone um, mm -hmm. And so I think, like, it is very much set up to be a balance to the, like, SLACs and uh, Ivy Leagues and, like, you know, st state universities that are more, um, you know, the ones with the ideological problems. Um, <laughs> and I think that's okay. Like, it doesn't need to be uh, s sort of, like, applicable to every type of higher ed. And yeah, I think like, but I think your, your point is good in the sense, like, I think it's good to just keep in mind when you say like higher education, that you're not actually referring to most of higher education, which is like these um, broad access and community colleges, things like that. So I'm, I'm curious, like, so do, what do you think about their prospects for success? I... I think that it's kind of come along uh, at the right moment and kind of has the right people supporting it that it could raise like a shit ton of money. Um, there's definitely a lot of people that agree with Barry Weiss and Andrew Sullivan about these things. Um, and there's probably some like pretty rich people who agree with these things. So I could... I could definitely see them raising enough money to, re, you know, do do things like buy land, uh, build build buildings, and hire people, and sort of like put things in place. One thing I really wonder about is like, who's going to attend? Like, I I just th I just feel like if I was an undergrad, I mean, not that many young people. I, I don't think of that involved in these kind of culture war issues and like reading Barry Weiss and, and, and thinking, yeah, like I, I want to go to university of Austin cause <laughs> I'll be able to say exactly what I think instead. And that's going to be different to my experience at like UT Austin say. Um, and also just like, I, I just think if you're a student and you sort of understand culture war, like issues a little bit, you would understand that like, you're not going to get into grad school <laughs> if you like you know you like with a an undergrad degree from this university like that is widely mocked and run by people that are widely despised in uh, elite institutions you're probably excluding yourself from those elite institutions by going there or getting a or getting a phd there or even like being an assistant professor there or something like that so i'm yeah i'm curious what do you how do you what do you think's going to happen i find it really hard to to predict other than that like it seems like 
there'll be enough money behind it for something real to come out of it. Yeah, I think in this, I think they're not going to really have an issue getting the financial support for it. Because again, I think this is where academic Twitter is quite disconnected from not academic Twitter. Like there's a lot of money that's going to be thrown at this. Like, Mm -hmm. um, so I think people on academic Twitter may underestimate how much money people are willing to support this and how many people aren't mocking it. Um, Mm -hmm. and how many people with just very deep pockets will support it. So I don't think the money's the issue, the business plan. I'm still curious about, I've never opened up a university, so (laughs) I'm not really sure what goes into it. Obviously it seems like they've had a lot of thought and they've probably been working on this for at least a decent amount of time, but, um, their timeline seems very ambitious for setting up a full run university, like with research centers and graduate programs and undergraduate programs. So I don't know about the you know viability of that, but um, I think they are going to have an issue of like, who are the students going to be at first? Like, is it just going to be like people from the deep corners of like Reddit that are like crawling out and want to go to UT Austin? <laughs> like that's the only thing. And then Jonathan Heights kids, people who, as he They want to go to UT Austin and they apply <laughs> yeah. to U- University of Austin by mistake. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I mean, has anyone thought of that problem? Like showing up and it's like, this is the world-class university I thought it was. Um, yeah. I'm, I'm really curious of how it's going to actually get off the ground. It seems more like a really fancy heterodox Academy type organization that would do like summer programs or courses. I, I think they're trying to do too much complexity and like create a very complex organization from scratch, which I think that's exactly what they're trying to do, but I think that's going to be hard. But then again, I've never opened up a university, so maybe I have absolutely no idea what I'm talking about. Maybe it's easier than I thought. Yeah, it does seem like uh, quite a challenge. Um, and also, I think like the like they're not going to be accredited for a while, so they're not even going to be conferring degrees. And so, yeah, like do you sort of go there and then also get a real degree somewhere else, or like because you can't? The, well, the normal thing is. The normal thing that happens in this situation is that once it's accredited, you get your degree like retroactively, aw- retroactively o- awarded. Oh, interesting. Okay, that's yeah. cool. maybe this is why they're uh, starting. You just got to bet with... on them. Maybe this is why they're starting with graduate programs, so it's like mm. less costly for people to attend because they already have like a real degree that will be valued. I think if I read somewhere that like, they're trying to start off with like a master's program is like the first thing. The undergraduate college comes later, so I think maybe that's why. Yeah, but even I mean they 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 plan on starting the undergraduate program in 2024. Mm. I think, um, which is it yeah. seems like they're not really going to do hard sciences. It seems like a very like humanities based. Um program and and in that sense like i actually think it'd be easy to set up a social psychology department like give me some laptops and an mturk account and like <laughs> I'm, I'm good to go like it's not a, like you know pe- teach on powerpoints and i yeah like i the the logistics don't seem that overwhelming if you're just teaching humanities to me like you know they're not gonna buy a hadron collider or an fMRI scanner, I believe. No, it sounds like they're going to have like the natural sciences and a very like historical type 
mm. approach to that mm. of you know of all their polymaths on the on the faculty that they're gonna get to teach <laughs> like it's like 1890 or something i'm not I'm really curious. I think it is going to be much more humanities based to your point. Like, yeah, it's just, they're not going to have like credible hard. They're not going to have like a credible physics department. Yeah. Okay. Well, here's a question. Here's a question for you guys. Okay. So say Rachel, you graduate in what? Three, three years, two years, two and a half, two and a half. Okay. So say you, you've graduated and Nicole, let's just say you've, uh, you're, you're on the job market for some reason. <laughs> uh, and a job comes up, you know, tenure track, assistant professor role, University of Austin. Um, let, imagine that the salary is competitive. Um, it's $55,000. You're, 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 <laughs> you're open to living in Austin. Now let's say Peter Thiel chips in another like $5 billion and, and that salary, the salary goes up. You're open to living in Austin. Your partner's open to living in Austin. Would you... I guess it's a, it's an impossible question to ask because you don't know the shape of the institution at this stage. But do, like, do you think you would go get apply for a job at this institution? It's a good question. I don't think... I, I'm not going to say absolutely not. Mm. I, don't, I kind of want to see what's going on. Maybe they'll prove everyone wrong. You know, I want to give them the benefit of the doubt on there. But... Um, yeah. Because if I were to move full-time to academia, it would be a full-time teaching. So if they're mm. offering what I'm looking for at the time, great. Mm. But I also have no interest in moving to Texas. So that's <laughs> probably not going to happen. I, I would. Yeah, 100%. Yeah. I'd do it. i do it even <laughs> for less than a uh, competitive salary, probably. Okay, well, there you go. <laughs> so if anyone's listening... <laughs> $45,000 is the number to get Rachel it. to come to your university. Yeah. I mean, I, yeah, and, and like, I don't know, because I think those spaces, um, just in terms of like, this is sort of what I was talking about earlier, just the, the environment, um, it just seems a lot healthier and more productive and just like more enjoyable mm. than mm. Uh, traditional like academic um I mean, you know, like... Be because of the open, free dialogue. Yeah, to the commitment mm. to, you know, civil mm. discourse and open inquiry and yeah. um, just knowing that, like, like, I actually can have an opinion that's different from people in the room and, like, mm. I'm not going to be ostracized mm. for it. Well, hmm. You're not going to get fired. Like, I mean, one thing that whoever works at this university, one thing that they'll know is that, you know, they're not going to get fired for exercising their, their free speech and, and saying what they think and expressing unpopular viewpoints and stuff like that. But I think also, I mean, a, a lot of the problems are not about getting fired. They're about being socially ostracized and being ridiculed and being like, Re cheated really um, treated really uncharitably um by your field at large and i think yeah great like my institution is not going to fire me if i if i say what i think but that that doesn't really solve a lot of the problems like is my work going to be accepted to journals is my work going to be accepted to conferences is anybody you know so 
yeah like it i mean i guess they're not they're not claiming to solve everything and it i guess it would be great to think like yeah great i'm going to go to this place be an assistant professor and like i you know my job's going to be safe if i say something that upsets a lot of people i mean that'd be good but also like i think like to me i'd weigh it up in terms of like okay well uh, a lot of people are just going to dismiss me immediately because of the institution I'm at now, right? So, like, I think, like, my I might be able to feel freer about saying what I think about things, but those words might not go as far, or they might just be, like, less persuasive. I kind of feel the same way about, like, publishing a think piece in, like, Colette or something. You know, like, so, like so many people will just say, oh, Colette, no, I, I am, I'm not listening to this. I'm not open to what is being said here because of the affiliation so i don't know i think like yeah i think that's true but like i personally i think i care more about my day-to-day uh like sense of community and feeling like yeah it's not really about like the threat to my job uh so much Mm. as it's just like i want to feel like i can talk to my colleagues openly Mm. and get Mm. their honest opinions as well like i feel like people censor themselves a lot and i censor myself and it just like creates a lot of sort of artificial consensus um Mm -hmm. that yeah yeah well apparently uh nicole's phone is about to die oh no your your earpods are about to die or something's about to die yeah i still have the original generation one ipod so the battery life is pretty terrible I actually, it's a good thing because, like, I think the ideal pod length is about an hour and a half, and we're getting. Uh, I don't know. I don't know. I can't remember when we started, but I, I, it feels like a pretty good place to leave the conversation. Um, so so we'll guess, all go yeah, work there. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So or we can start if any, our own university. You know, that's a, a comment, great idea. <laughs> more of a comment, you. Exactly. Uh, one of the. Um, funniest comments that i heard because barry Witt, barry weiss was like it's a university for witches who refuse to burn um <laughs> and dramatic. somebody was like go university of austin witches as if that like that'll be the mascot and i was just <laughs> like yes that, that, that should totally be the, the mascot oh that would God. be amazing Wh- yeah it's but they're not gonna have a mascot because that's uh that's too much bloat and you know they're cutting down on administrative anything, but, excess yeah. i don't know i'll design the logo for free <laughs> um cool well thank you nicole again so much i really appreciate you coming on look forward to having you on again you're a friend of yeah. the pod now potentially potential replacement Rachel, I thought you did well today. I think, you know, we'll, we'll keep you on. Thank the, you. For <laughs> foreseeable future. All right. Um, yeah, it was great talking to you guys. And, um, yeah, have a great weekend. Thanks. Yeah, you too. Thanks. Bye.